All right, thank you, ladies. I'm going to ask you to go in your Bibles, please. Matthew chapter 18 tonight. Matthew 18. As I mentioned to you this morning and at other times in planning for and preparing for our Missions Emphasis Month, we want to emphasize our mission field. We want to emphasize our part in the Great Commission process in the place where God has planted us. If I understand church planting as it is taught in the New Testament, it isn't necessarily always a soul winner or an evangelist going into a place and starting a church. It can be that. But many times it's an evangelist or a missionary or someone burdened about an area goes in and finds believers that are already there. And from that group of believers begins a church or work. And that's kind of actually how it happened here in Glenford. There was a group of people who one in the church in this area, and a pastor was called. That, that, that group began to meet, and a pastor was called. That process of, if you want to call it church planting, church growth, whatever you want to call it, that New Testament process should be repeating itself continually. In other words, God does not put churches in places or put people in places to build church churches in those places so that those churches become fortresses. Churches aren't built to be a fortress. Churches are built to shine the light of the gospel. We have the responsibility of shining the light of the gospel to our area. That applies to us as a church. But as a church, then, that means it applies to my own home. My home is to be a place where the Great Commission process is to be at work. <clears throat> inside it and outside it. Inside my home, I'm to be making disciples. With my neighbors, I'm to carry out the Great Commission process. God has put us here on purpose. God has put you in your neighborhood, on your street, beside the people you live beside and around on purpose. And we are to be fulfilling that great commission process where God has placed us. Now as a church, there are tools, ministries, 
that help us or maybe help keep us focused or motivate us or however you want to describe it. There, as a church, there are tools that we use to help us do the Great Commission. I was having a conversation recently. Actually, my wife and my son were having a conversation today about this. I was recently having a conversation with someone about this. And they were, they were bemoaning, and I'm not saying my wife and son were doing this, but in the conversation I had, they were bemoaning the fact that churches are just overrun with programs. And believe me, I feel that pain at times. And the complaint was, why do churches have to have all these programs? And I think that's a legitimate question. Why, why do we need to have fall family meetings? Why do we need to have a community day? Why do we need to have Sunday school, children's church? Why do we need to have youth ministry, young adult ministry? Why do we need all these programs? Now I think... I think a church can become, or I think a church can overemphasize programs and and create burnout in its people. But I also think we need to realize that programs can be, ministries should be tools. They are a means to an end, not the end itself. Please remember that. They are a means to an end, not the end itself. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, you can have successful programs and be failing at the Great Commission. You can have kids programs with oodles and oodles of children and not be doing the Great Commission. You can have a vibrant teen group and not be doing the Great Commission. You understand what I mean by that? The problem is, though, we sometimes need the motivation or the help of a program because would we do the work of the Great Commission without it? Now, we should, but are we? I mean, really, let's just be honest. Are you and I doing the work faithfully, consistently of making disciples for Jesus Christ inside our homes and outside our homes. When it comes to the ministries of Maranatha Bible Church, the Great Commission is at the heart. And the Great Commission is found in Matthew chapter 28. Now we're not going to go there. But in Matthew 28, the command is, as you are going, make disciples. Make disciples. A disciple, a disciple by definition, is a, is a student follower. If we are doing the Great Commission, we will be reproducing Students and followers of Jesus Christ. And we will do that at every age level. 
me say that again. If we are doing the Great Commission, we will be producing students and followers of Jesus at every age level. Now, obviously, when I say that, I'm talking about level of understanding. But even then, nursery workers can have an influence as disciple makers. We are, as a church, and as individual believers, to be producing followers of Christ. So with that in mind, I want to tonight discuss with you our children's ministry. Can I tell you that I've seen children's ministries done very, very well, and I've seen otherwise. I have seen places where there was an imbalance on reaching the entire family and just a primary focus of reaching children. Now, am I saying children shouldn't be reached? Please don't say I've ever said that. I'm not saying that at all. Children need Christ. But the work of the church is to produce disciples at every age level. When we talk about ministry to children, I think we need to keep a few things in mind. One, it is one of the most important ministries any church can have. Ministry to children is one of the most important ministries, but it is certainly not one of the most glamorous. It is one of the most important ministries, but certainly not one of the most more glamorous. And you nursery workers can say a hearty amen to that. Number two, it is one of the most important ministries, but it's not an easy ministry. It's not easy. If children's ministry is easy, then something is being left out. But I also want you to understand it is one of the most important ministries a church can have. And when we're doing that ministry, we are reflecting the heart of our Savior. Because He ministered to children. We're in Matthew chapter 18. Let's look at the first six verses. And at the same time, or literally within the same hour, talking about what's just happened in the preceding verses, at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now there's a question. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Why would they even want to know that? You know what they're not asking? They're not asking, Is Abraham the greatest? They're not asking, is Moses the greatest? You know what they're asking? Peter's asking, is Peter the greatest? John is asking, is John the greatest? 
James is asking, is James the greatest? As a matter of fact, James and John are going to pick up this theme a couple more times. And they're going to get their mother in on it on one occasion. So they're not asking about who's greatest, even acknowledging Jesus himself. No, they want to know among the twelve, who's the greatest. So Jesus... Jesus answers with a, with a visible illustration. And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. In other words, I, can do, I, I love this, at least in my mind, how I see this. You've got the disciples, you've got the apostles sitting around you, kind of, and Jesus is a part of that group. And there are people, it's kind of a, Busy scene, there's people moving about, but, but the disciples have Jesus' attention. Like, hey, Jesus, who's the greatest here? Yeah, you know, just go ahead, tell me, tell me, go ahead. And Jesus says, um, Billy, come here. Now, Billy's a Jewish name. Billy, <laughs> Billy, come here. And Jesus kind of sets Billy up on his knee and he says, Well, teach you something, fellas. See this child? If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you need to be more like Billy. You see, because verse 3, Verily or truly I say unto you, except you be converted. Now that's not talking about salvation. That's talking about changing the way you think. Unless you change the way you think and become as little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of God is a, it's, it's, uh, is a parallel phrase as well. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself. He's just explained what he meant by what he said in verse 3. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There's your answer. And whosoever shall receive such a such little child, one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and they were drowned in the depth of the sea. I want you to see here a few lessons that we can learn from Billy, all right? And lessons we can learn from what our Lord Jesus has taught us here. When Jesus says we must become, we must be converted and become as one of these little ones, changing their thinking. What do they need to change their thinking about? About this idea of greatness. About this idea of recognition. Really what Jesus is saying to them here is men... You need to humble yourself. That's, that's the idea, of, again, of the word converted. Stop thinking you're more important than you really are. And start seeing yourself as a little child. Now, I think we need to understand this 
as well. Children are not always humble. So he's not saying you need to be as humble as a child. Because children aren't always humble, are they? Children want their own way. And they make sure you understand that. Children are selfish. Children are little rebels. I'm sorry if I'm offending anybody. But they are. So he's not saying you need to be humble like Billy. But what he is saying is you need to demonstrate the kind of humble submission that a child should have. And that even comes out a little more in this idea of self-dependence. Jesus is saying, you need to stop depending on yourself and start depending on Me. And he even goes into the idea of salvation. You see, anyone who's depending on themselves for salvation is never going to have it. Anyone who's depending on their success will always fail when it comes to genuine salvation. Let me read a quote to you. The child is weak, small, basically helpless, and unimportant in comparison with grown-ups. It is dependent on others. The younger it is, the more dependent. This objective insignificance of the child, not any particular characteristic of the children, (coughs) is set forth as the way in which disciples are to think of themselves. (coughs) Humility, dependence. A child child understands there are some things it can't do. Now it may want to, but it can't. And you and I need to get to that point in our life with Jesus. When we're willing to admit that there are things we cannot do, but He can. So we need to learn from children. You know what? Working with children, teaching children, will teach you that there are things you can't do. Working with children will help teach each of us that we need to depend on God for what we can't do for ourselves. So see, ministering to children is not just a one-way process. And by that I mean, it's not just a teacher or a worker benefiting a child. No, the benefit goes both directions. There are lessons you and I need to learn from children. This thing of dependence. That is one of the most important lessons anyone needs to learn 
before they can ever become a child of God. Because at the heart of dependence is trust. At the heart of dependence is trust. You set your child up on a, on a coffee table and you say what? Hold out your hands and you say, jump. Now, they are depending on you to keep your word. I'll catch you. Jump. I sometimes have people say to me when they're struggling with their salvation, they're doubting their salvation, and there's more to it at times, but one of the things sometimes that they'll say is, how much faith does it take? Well, there's several answers to that. One, it's not the amount of faith, it's the object of faith. All right. So it's not how much, but I think the Lord does help us to know what kind of faith we ought to have. When He says, except you become as little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? That means we need to have the dependence and humility of a child. And without that, we cannot ever expect to truly be a child of God. Humility, admitting we're sinners. We need a Savior depending on Jesus as our perfect sacrifice and for God keeping His Word when He says that He will clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. That when we call upon the name of the Lord, we will be saved. And let me just say one more thing before we move on to our next point, and that is this. If you are not humble, <coughs> and if you are if we are not practicing dependence on God, we will not be effective children's ministers. And that's more than just because we'll be setting a bad example. That's also because we may be teaching children (coughs) the very kinds of attitudes that Jesus says keeps them out of heaven. So there are some lessons we can learn. But there are also, the Lord is very clear some warnings. Look at verse 6. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, let me just say something about interpreting this text. When we talk about little ones, There are those who would say that little ones here is a general reference to maybe believers who are weaker or not as mature. I think think we can say that, but I don't necessarily think that that's all that this is. I think Jesus is actually talking about the children that he has used as a lesson. And he's making a very strong warning when he says, don't offend. Now, 
let's talk about the word offend. The word offend actually means to scandalize. Don't scandalize one of these children. Now, I think there are some things that it could mean, but some of the things that it could mean aren't all the things that it does mean. I think certainly it could be referring to abuse of any kind. Don't abuse children. I think it could mean that, but I don't think that's all it means. Because the word itself is a picture of Anybody ever done any trapping? You've done you've, you've done some trapping. Now I'm not talking about the kind of traps that are metal that you kind of you, you have to open up and the, the, the animal steps in it and grab. That's that. What I'm talking about is maybe you've had a net or you've had a box and the box had or the net had some kind of trigger mechanism so that when the animal came along, it kicked over a stick and the box fell down or it hit a, at a wire and the net caught the animal. The word speaks of the trigger that brings the trap down. It's talking about the bait stick that leads to the snaring. In other words, this may not be necessarily one Act, one action. This could be talking about a process, an overtime process which eventually leads a child into <coughs> a trap. And I'm not even necessarily talking about physically. This probably has more of a spiritual emphasis than a physical emphasis. In other words, the emphasis here is don't scandalize a child by teaching them false doctrine. This has a truth emphasis. It has a doctrinal emphasis. Don't scandalize a child by teaching them along the way things that are false, that are wrong, that are lies, so that eventually they're trapped and end up in hell. Don't cause them. Someone, the word, or the, the, the phrase, actually some translate, don't cause them to be apostates. Apostate is someone who's known the truth and turned from it and never goes back to it. And haven't we seen that happen? Haven't we seen kids who've grown up in church reject it, leave, not just leave church, but leave God, and never come back? That's this. And I think there's lots of ways that happens. But primarily, it's by not teaching the Bible as the Bible. You know what? Kids can hear about David and Goliath and know when they are and 
Jonah and the whale, they can hear about Moses and the burning bush and a Red Sea, and they can hear about lambs and sacrifices. They can hear about a baby born in Bethlehem and a man who died and came back to life and die and go to hell. They can know the stories and die without Christ. And please don't take this as an indictment upon anyone here or anyone you know. But I want to make a very strong statement. I don't want Maranatha to ever be guilty of scandalizing a child by not teaching the way the child should be taught. We should be more than just a Bible storytelling church. We should be a show them Jesus church. And that's done through opening the scriptures as well as living a life transformed and being transformed by Jesus. Don't offend, don't scandalize, don't set the trap (coughs) for a child that leads them to destruction. What What is the punishment for that? It were better for him than a millstone. This is, this is a funny word too. It, it's actually a donkey stone. That's literally what this word is. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, <coughs> it's the stone that would grind the meal, uh, the, the, the flour as the donkeys were tied to the post. You've seen these things. The donkeys were tied and they just walk round and round and, and it would grind the grain into flour or whatever they were making. And obviously what our Lord is saying here is a person who scandalizes a child deserves to have that thing, that stone tied around their neck and be thrown into the sea. Jesus is not being very nice. But He is being godly. Now, he certainly is is not implying in any way that one one act or even failing a child deserves damnation. He's talking again, remember, it's a a scandal, it's a process, it's over time. It's it's laying the groundwork that leads to the trap. We're talking about a lifestyle that leads to destroying the lives of children and the souls of children. In other words, folks, we ought to take very, very, very seriously our ministry to children. 
Matthew chapter 18, verse number 10, we have another warning. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. And then he has, this is very interesting. It's the only time he says anything like this. For I say unto you that in heaven, their angels do always behold the face of my Father, which is in heaven. It's the only time Jesus talks about personal angels. All right. But I I want you to see what he's saying. And why do I include this in the warning or under the warning heading? And that is this. Where (coughs) does Jesus say the angels are? Tell me. They are in heaven. You know, sometimes we talk about guardian angels. We talk about guardian. I think I've killed a few of mine, but we, we, we talk about these angels that watch out. And I'm not saying, I'm certainly not saying it, this is not true. When we talk about these angels that are near us or around us, and we, we talk about children and they're, they're, they have a guardian angel watching over it. And, and that may be true. But Jesus is, it's interesting that he says that your children have angels that are in heaven. And what are they doing in heaven? They are beholding the face of God. By definition, the word angel means messenger. Here's how I take what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying your children and the children you minister to have an angel in heaven and they're carrying messages to God about that child on earth. You say that's ridiculous because God already knows what's going on. It may sound ridiculous, but I think that's what Jesus is saying. That your children, your grandchildren, the children we minister to, have an angel who's talking to God about that child. You don't want to mess with angels. One killed 185,000 one time. The Syrians. You don't want to mess with angels. You don't want to mess with their children. The children they are talking to God about. So don't offend and don't despise. Well, how do I know what is, what is, what is the idea of despise? What does it mean to despise? Very simply, this word means don't look down on children or think lightly of them. I'm about to really create issues, I think. I don't think Jesus had the philosophy that children are to be seen and not heard. I don't think he felt that. He said, don't despise children. And and isn't be seen and not heard almost an attitude of derision? 
Isn't it almost an attitude of you're not important? You see, that's not what Jesus would say or think. Don't despise. And then in conclusion, let's just talk about being like Jesus when it comes to children. And I want you to go to chapter 19 and see how we can be like Jesus in ministering to children. Verse number 14 says, or let's just back up to verse 13. Then were brought unto him little children. And by the way, um, just so you know, this isn't necessarily talking about just infants. The little probably includes that, but the idea of children can, can, can be a wide range of ages, all right? And, and some of the gospel writers use one word and some of the gospel writers use another. So we're, we're going to say that this, these are all ages of children. Then we're brought unto him little children, and that she, he should put his hands on them. And this is, this is, this is this may be healing, but not necessarily just healing. He's certainly going to pray for them. That's what verse 13. And the disciples rebuked them. Now, who did they rebuke? The children and the parents who brought them. But Jesus said, allow, suffer the little children and don't you dare stop them. This is a, this is a verbal rebuking command. You let those children come and don't you dare stop them. Don't you to forbid them to come to me. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them. And then he departed from there. So how can we be like Jesus? Well, let's welcome children. Let's welcome children. And by that I mean welcome them into your life. Not just into your atmosphere, but into your life. You know something of some of my history. You know that my parents divorced when I was seven. My mom remarried when I was 10. The man she divorced was at one end of the emotional spectrum. He was very melancholy. He was very um, not even easygoing. He just wasn't going, okay? He was just, it was just, and spent most of his time in an alcoholic stupor. On the other end of that spectrum was the man she remarried and he was violent and angry and loud. And so I had both of those influences, one and and really both got in my head and in my heart to the point that I was a very mixed up kid, mixed up teenager, and still mixed up in a lot of ways now, all right? 
But there were three men. Two of them were grandfathers. Mine. One of my grandfathers fought in the Pacific during World War II. Was a decorated World War II hero. My other grandfather fought in North Africa and Italy. His last assignment was to blow up the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And they were at the street corner when the war ended, which is why it's still there, or I'm convinced he had taken it out. But then there's a third. His name is Roland Barlow. Roland Barlow probably spent more time with me than any man other than my grandfather's. He was my youth pastor. There were times that I was the only kid to show up for youth activities. But we'd play football like there was 50 of us. Or volleyball or balloon basketball. And I'll show you what that's like sometime. In other words, we did everything like there was a whole parcel of us. And he preached to me like there was a whole room full of us. He poured his life into this kid. Is there anybody you need to pour your life into? They may not go to the church. They may be in your neighborhood. They may be a niece or a nephew. A grandchild. Are we welcoming children into our lives. We should take very seriously what James says about pure religion. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. Undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Roland did that. Is there somebody you can do that for? Welcome children. (coughs) Allow them don't, hold, don't keep them at arm's length. Never push a child away. Never make them feel like you don't have time. Then what else did Jesus do? I want you to go to Mark, please, chapter 10. We've seen this. We saw this in Matthew 18 and 19. 
We're going to see it now as Mark describes it. Mark's a little more specific in in how he describes our Lord's personal reaction to the children. Chapter 10, starting at verse 13. And they brought young children to him. Matthew said little. Mark says young. And they brought young children to him that he should touch them. Now I just want to pause there a second. I know we live in a day where we have to be careful and wise about touching children. We want to be smart. We want to be wise as serpents, gentle as doves. But God help us that we ever get to the place where we're afraid to touch a child. Now again, we want to be careful But Jesus touched the children. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. (coughs) Again, the parents. (coughs) But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased. He was put out and said, allow the children to come. Don't you dare forbid them. For such is the kingdom of heaven. Verily, I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. He took them up in his arms. And he put his hands on them. And he blessed them. You know what I think? I think we ought to set a goal for ourselves. That if possible, if possible, when possible, be a blessing to a child every day. Be a blessing to a child every day. Walmart, Kroger, Yard sailing. We met Noah yesterday, not, you know, the art guy. But we met Noah. Noah was having a bake sale. And I had enough to buy some Rice Krispie treats and a glass of lemonade. I wanted to be a blessing to Noah. So I spent a dollar. But we're going to go back to see Noah's parents one of these days. Because my wife was able to have a conversation with mom. We actually already had an open door through another child that my wife took under her wing and spent time with tutoring a couple of summers ago. His grandmother is Noah's grandmother. So we met Nicole and Zach Noah's parents be a blessing to a child what does it mean to be a blessing make their life better praise honor be a blessing to a child and then this may seem 
Like, really, Pastor, that is so simple. But yet, are we doing this? Are we praying for children? Children that don't belong to you or you're in your family. Are you, are you praying for other people's children? Are you praying for other children's parents? That's what the Bible talks about when it says that Jesus laid his hands on he that was more the idea of he was he was holding their little head or their their face and he was praying for that child. Do you have children on your prayer list? I want you to pray for my grandson. I do. I pray for your children and your grandchildren that I know some maybe that I've not even met. Are we praying for children? I understand little pictures have big ears, so I want to be careful what I'm about to say. Our children and our grandchildren are entering a world we've never experienced. And it's not getting better for them. It's not getting better for them. It's frightening in some ways. Are we praying for children? Which incidentally is another way to be a blessing to them. So, you say, it's pretty somber, preacher. It's it's pretty heavy stuff. Will there be any children in heaven because of your ministry to them. You see, some people are sometimes 